1 Kings chapters 3 and 4. So turn there. We started this sermon series working through all of 1 Kings and 2 Kings last week. Uh, and we looked at the transition of power from King David to King Solomon. So we looked at David's final kind of parting uh, words of instruction to his son Solomon. We looked at Solomon establishing his reign and his kingdom in Israel. Um, and now his reign begins. Chapters 3 and following, probably up until uh, chapter 11, is the reign of King Solomon. So we're going to look at his wisdom and his wealth today in, verse, in chapters 3 and 4. We're going to look at his building of the temple and the palace next week in chapters 5 through 8. And then we're going to look at Solomon's downfall in chapters 9 through 11 in the following uh, week. And so kind of see his story and see his arc and see his trajectory kind of take shape over the course of uh, these, these four uh, weeks. So, like I said, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to dive right in. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're not going to read through it because it's, it's too much to read through up top. But I'm going to pray, and we're going to read through pretty much all of it over the course of the, the sermon this morning. So, let's pray, and then we'll get to work starting in chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to gather together and study your word and hear from your word. Lord, we pray that you would use these next few minutes as we uh, gather, as we listen, to just make us more like Jesus, conform our hearts into the likeness of Jesus. We pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. We pray that you would shape us and mold us so that we might grow in our faith um, and leave here more Christ-like than we, than we came. So we ask your blessing on these next few minutes, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Starting chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter, and he brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house uh, and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So not a great start. Um, this was a pretty common practice in the ancient Near East. Kings would, would uh, do this regularly to consolidate power. They would marry the daughters of other kings of nearby civilizations. We saw last week, when you become a king in the ancient Near East, uh, your kingdom was constantly under siege. It's constantly being threatened in any number of, of ways. And so the first way that we saw last week in chapters 1 and 2 was through your own siblings and your own family members and your own advi- people that were close to you and close proximity to the throne that you sat on. Uh, it's very possible that any one of them might say, you know, I want to be king. I want to be king more than this guy. They might try to kill you. Your, your you know, own brothers might try to kill you before you become king or just after you become king. Uh, thrones and kingdoms were also threatened by, and we see this in the course of the, the Old Testament kind of taking shape, but these big uh, international, global empire superpowers, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, they would just come in and say, you're now part of our kingdom, deal with it. But, uh, but kind of maybe the most common and kind of the most normative, because those, those superpowers are kind of a once-in-a-generation kind of thing, but the most normal, everyday way that your, thro- your throne, your kingdom might be threatened is by those small kingdoms that share borders with you, right around you, they were constantly, there's constantly these skirmishes to move the boundary lines one way or the other. And so a particularly strong king with a particularly strong army would push the borders of his kingdom out, and a particularly weak king or a weak army, they would get kind of closed in on, on them. And so one way to kind of keep that from happening 
One way to kind of hedge against your neighboring kingdoms pushing in on you and taking all of your, your kingdom and demanding tribute from you was to just marry one of their daughters, right? Like the king is maybe going to be less likely to uh, invade and try to, you know, extract tribute from his own daughter. You know, he'd be less likely to do it from his own daughter than he would from just some guy who he doesn't know from, from Adam. And so this is a common way uh, for, for kingdoms to kind of be secured and to have a little insurance policy. The catch is it was explicitly forbidden by God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, you shall not make a covenant with them. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters or your sons uh, to them. You shall not take their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons away from following me, and they would cause them to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So God says, don't do that. Don't do what Solomon does. Don't kind of make alliances with neighboring kingdoms. Don't marry uh, their children because they're going to move in, set up shop, bring all of their religious paraphernalia. And even if your intentions are pure, even if you have every intention of walking with God and worshiping God and following God, over time you'll probably end up turning away from God and worshiping other gods instead of the true God. So don't do it. There's also uh, kind of a, the foundation from which the New Testament command uh, for Christians to marry Christians uh, c- comes from, right? If you read 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, it's very clear that, that believers, followers of Jesus are to marry other believers, other followers of Jesus, so that their marriage can, can reflect and portray the gospel, the grace of God, the glory of God. And that command for believers to marry believers is kind of born out of uh, that command from God in Deuteronomy 7. And so right here, right away, first thing that Solomon does as he starts reigning is, is break, that, break that command. So Solomon's a good king in a lot of ways. We're going to see as we work through the next, uh, you know, seven, eight chapters, he's a good king and a godly king, but he's also a bad king. He's a mixed bag. He has good and bad. He, he has, uh, there's things that he does that are good and commendable and exemplary. There's things that he do, does that are uh, far from perfect and that, are, that actually serve as a warning uh, to, to us. In fact, uh, verse 2, we're going to see that exact thing. Verse 2, it says, There the, uh, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. The high places were were these publicly accessible structures, kind of either, either um, you know, unenclosed, kind of out in, the, in the, the wilderness, or maybe a temple with an altar uh, where people would come to make offerings. Sometimes the offerings would be to the true God. More often than not, they were to, to other gods, false gods. And so God kind of made it very clear, uh, do not worship me. Don't worship anyone, but don't worship me at the high places because those are associated with uh, idolatry. They're associated with, um, you know, prostitution and, and, and adultery and things like that. So don't worship God there. And so verse 2 says that's what Solomon was doing. That's what the people were doing under the reign of Solomon. Verse 3, immediately after it, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So mixed bag, right? A godly person. He loved God. He, he kind of wanted to be like his father David. His David was a man after God's own heart. And yet Solomon was also, he brought with him all kinds of baggage, 
of, of, you know, being tempted to worship other gods or being tempted to worship God in a way that God has forbidden for him to be worshipped. That was the, the, the high places were kind of the standard by which all of the kings, we're going to see that word over and over in First and Second Kings. Every king that we see in these two books, he's judged by, did he walk in the steps, the footsteps of his father David? Was he a good, godly king like David? That's kind of box one check. You know, if he did, then that's good. If he didn't, then that's bad. But the, the second box that, that the, all the kings are judged by is, did they remove the high places? Were the high places left in Israel so that people could come worship there? Because if so, that's a bad king. That's a bad king that is encouraging and, and kind of allowing his people to worship God in a way that God has expressly forbidden. So a good king removes the high places and walks in the footsteps of his father David, and a bad king leaves the high places, worships at the high places, and does not walk in the steps of his father David. And so, so Solomon, walk in that line, right? He's, he's a mixed bag. He's some good, some bad. And, uh, and he is walking in the statutes of his father David, but he did not remove the high places. He was worshiping there, which again is going to you know lead to... Uh, idolatry, and it's going to lead to um, worshiping false gods. Verse 5, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and he said, uh, ask, and I sh- ask what I shall give to you. So God comes to Solomon in a dream, ask me anything that you want. Right? Uh, I, I have made some, some sweeping declarations to your father David, about how I'm going to bless him and about how he's never going to, there's always going to be a descendant of his on the throne of Israel. I want to bless you on account of your father David. So ask me anything that you want. Verse 6. Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because we walked before you, because he walked before you in faithfulness and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O oh my Lord, my God, you have made your servant, me, Solomon, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I don't know how to come out or go in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind, to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? So Solomon says, ask me for anything. God says, ask me for anything. Solomon says, that is a ridiculous offer. You have, you've been nothing but good to me, right? You were good to my father, even when he sinned against you. You've been good to me, even though I am far from perfect, and so now you're, you're saying that you'll offer me, you'll give me anything that I want in the world. The one thing that I want more than anything else is wisdom. Wisdom to rule righteously, right? Wisdom because I, like, I'm the king, I'm in charge of everyone, I'm responsible for them, I'm accountable for them, even though I'm young. He says I'm a young child. Scholars think that Solomon was around 20 years old uh, when he became king, which is effectively a young child, right? 20 years old is... It's like a sophomore in college. So you're in charge of an entire uh, nation, the entire economy, the entire workforce, everything that happens within the borders of your nation when you are a, a sophomore in college. And so Solomon recognizes that this is a big task and that he has a lot to learn. And he says, I'm not ready. I need you to give me wisdom. 
verse 10, And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and you have not asked for yourself uh, for a long life, or for riches, or for the, the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you, or I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you who has ever been before you or ever shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God commends Solomon for, right, he says, I said, I gave you, you know, I said, ask for anything you want in the whole world. And you, like most people would say, I wish for a million wishes or, right, I wish for a billion dollars, right? M- m- most people would ask for something selfish, money to spend on myself, power to do whatever I want, me, me. He says, you, Solomon, you asked for something that you can use to bless others and to take care of others. You asked for wisdom, recognizing that you have a big job that is, you know, bigger than you can handle and asking for God to bless you to help you do that job well, which also kind of implies that you recognize that there is a standard by which you as the king will be judged, which was kind of a a novel uh, concept. Most kings in that day and age, uh, they they understood themselves to be the end-all, be-all, right? A God among men, right? I I don't answer to God. I answer to myself. Everyone answers to me. I don't need wisdom to do. I am the personification, the epitome of wisdom and competence. That's how most kings understood themselves. And so Solomon's humility to ask for wisdom from God and his humility to understand that he was accountable to God and therefore needed to be wise in order to obey God speaks very highly of him. It's also instructive for us, right? Looking at Solomon and considering how God offers him anything that he wants in the whole entire world, and essentially he can choose between wealth to bless myself or wisdom to bless other people. And Solomon asks for wisdom to bless other people, right? If God appeared to you and asked you, what would you, if, you know, ask me for anything that you want in the whole entire world, what would you say? How would you, would you answer? Would you, would you answer like Solomon, right? With, with some sort of something that you could use to bless others, or would you answer like God probably expected Solomon to answer, or like most other kings would answer by something to, to bless yourself, something to kind of keep for your, for yourself, or maybe a more a more revealing question would not be to say, "How would I answer if God came to me and asked me this same question?" Right? Tell me anything that you want in the whole world, and I'll give it to you. But maybe a a more revealing, a more telling question would be to say, "What do I spend most of my time thinking about if I let my mind wander?" Right? What 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 do I what do I think about? What do I long for? What do I dream about? What, you know, what is it that I spend my time picturing? If I had this one thing, then my life would be awesome, right? What, what is it that you spend your time thinking about? Is it something that you can, you know, something like wisdom that you can use to bless others? Or is it something like wealth, possessions, stuff, so that you can have a comfortable life that you, that you want? 
So Solomon says, give me anything you want, I want in the world. Uh, give me wisdom so that I can govern with justice, govern with righteousness, govern as you would have me govern. And then in verses 16 and following, we see an example of the, the wisdom of Solomon on display. Verse 16, it says, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him, kind of exercising their right as citizens to, to appeal straight to the king. The one woman said, My lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house, and then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone in the house. There was no one else there with us, only the two of us. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him, and she arose at midnight, and she took my son from beside me while your servant was sleeping, and she laid her... She laid him at her breast, and she took her dead son and laid him at my breast. And then when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, it was not the child that I had born. And the other woman said, No, the living child is mine. The dead child is yours. And the first said, No, the dead child is yours. The living child is mine. This is what they said before the the king. So two women come. He's got a case brought before him. Uh, he's got the facts of the case. We've got two women lived together. Both got pregnant around the same time. Both had a child around the same time. Neither fa- the father of either one is, is not in the, the picture. It's just the four of these people living in the house together. The facts are that one of those two children is dead. And then the, the disputed narratives, one says, the living child is mine. That person is crazy. She, you know... Her child died, and she did a switch, and I woke up and found it. This one's saying, no, she's lying. She's trying to steal my living child because her child had died. And Solomon's job is to figure out which one's the true mother, right? Make a, make a ruling that is just and right for the mother of the living child, and don't allow for the dishonest woman to steal the living child from the other. There's no evidence. There's no DNA tests. There's no, you know, there's just two narratives that are at odds with one another, and Solomon is left trying to determine who's telling the truth and who is lying. He's got a 50-50 shot, but he's also been granted wisdom from God, and so he determines, I'm going to, I'm going to do better than just 50-50 and pick the one that I think is the best. I'm going to actually try to drill down and figure out who is the rightful mother. Verse 23, the king says, uh, the one says, my son's alive, your son is dead. The other says, no, your son is dead, mine is the living one. The king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought to the king, and he said, Divide the living child in two, kill him, and give half to the one and half to the other. The idea is, I've got to get to the bottom of this. I've got to determine which of these two women is telling the truth, which of these two women is lying. But the the fact of the matter is, right, the facts of the case are that there's a, a dead child, there's two mothers who are trying to figure it out, but the facts are one of these two is lying, and not just lying, but like, like serial killer, like sociopathic, like, you know, not just lying, but like really out there, absurd behavior. And the other woman appears to be a a, a somewhat decent mother who's willing to go to great lengths to protect her child and to take care of her child. So the facts are, we've got a dead child, but we've also got one woman who's a a liar and probably a a sociopath and one woman who's a decent uh, mother. So let's construct a scenario in which they're respective true colors will will emerge. Right? The person who is a liar, sociopath, is probably going to be, is probably not going to lose any sleep over 
someone else's child being killed. In fact, that might even make them happy because they'll, they'll be able to share in their misery with their, with their, their friend, their, their roommate. But the woman who's the, the mother who has some modicum of, of real maternal instincts, right? their love for the child is probably going to come to the surface with this, with this scenario. And then verse 26, Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, Well, if I can't have him, you can't have him either. So divide, divide him up. And then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death, for she is the mother. So Solomon determines that he has kind of gained a little more insight into what actually happened overnight. He's not sure if the switch occurred or not, but he's pretty confident that he knows which one is more likely to lie and which one is more likely to look out for the well-being of their, of their child. So the decision is made, the verdict is rendered, the gavel is down. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about this, this strange, kind of weird story in First Kings. And this is kind of where we can see the wisdom of Solomon bleeding through, is that, that he actually cares about doing the right thing. He actually cares about, about making the right decision and making a ruling that is just and, and good. Which again, like we said, is kind of what the king is supposed to do, what God has kind of installed the king there, there to do. Your job is to, is to you know, rule with justice and, and righteousness. And again, something that, that we've already established is, is not to be taken for granted in the ancient world. That most other kings besides Solomon, a case like this would come before them and they would think, I don't have the time or the inclination to figure out which one of these women is telling the truth. There's, again, I don't, I, all I have is two people, two accounts. I don't know who to believe. And I don't know which one is telling the truth. Frankly, I don't really care which one is, is telling the truth. Right. In fact, I'll award custody to which, right, uh, whoever is in, in my best interest. So if either one of these women is willing to do something for me or give me some sort of favor or call in a favor, if they have a, a rich friend or family member that can do something and, and line my pockets or something like that, then maybe I will rule in accordance with, with that. Maybe I'll give them custody. But that be their, their main thing when they're making a ruling is what's, what's in my best interest? How can I look out for myself? Solomon is actually trying to figure out, right, at, at cost to himself, by the way, right, who, what, what's right and what's good. Solomon recognizes that God is sovereign, and, and even though he's the king and everyone in Israel answers to him, he is an under-shepherd, and God is the true shepherd. He answers to God. His job is to rule in accordance with the, the will of God. So Solomon, instead of just doing what's convenient and saying, sure, I'll just choose whoever uh, you know, is in my best interest to, to choose and give custody to that person, he tries to figure out what's right. He goes out of his way to determine and to kind of gather more facts and figure out who is right and rule in a way that's just and that's good. So we can see Solomon's wisdom on display already. Now, we read this story, and it might be easy to think, that's all well and good. That's just Solomon, right? Like, I'm never going to be in a situation where I'm faced, I'm never going to be in a situation where two women come to me who are asking me to render a verdict as to who the real mother is. Granted, right? I'm never, I'm, I'm not Solomon, 
so, so all of this stuff about Solomon doesn't really apply to me, and I might as well not really, um, there's not nothing that I can learn from, from it. Now, it's certainly true that none of us are the king of Israel. It's certainly true that, that two women are probably not going to come to us and ask us to render a verdict on who is the mother of the living child that they brought. But this text still applies. Solomon's story, Solomon's example still applies to us in any number of ways. Like Solomon, we are faced with any number of decisions on any given day where we can choose between what is convenient and what is beneficial to us personally and what's right. We're faced with decisions where we can um, act in folly like the other kings of the other nations, or we can act in wisdom like Solomon does here. We may not be the king of Israel. We, right, we may not have a, a vast domain with, with hundreds of thousands of, of citizens that are subjected to us and that are under our rule, but each of us do have our respective spheres of authority and spheres of influence. If you're parents, you have children that have been entrusted to you, uh, at work, maybe you have an area of responsibility that's been entrusted to you or people who, who report to you. And so like Solomon, we have choices to make and opportunities to either do what benefits us or what's right. God gave Solomon wisdom, and in his wisdom, Solomon decided not to do what's convenient or what's personally beneficial, but to do what's right and what's just and what brings glory to God. And we, like Solomon, have countless choices to do the same thing. We can choose to do what's right and just and brings glory to God, or we can do what's convenient and what will benefit us personally. Solomon, God gives Solomon wisdom. Solomon uses the wisdom to bless and benefit the people that he is uh, entrust, that, that have been entrusted to him and that he is accountable for. And then verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So Solomon's reputation as the king of the nation is spreading. This man is wise. This man has been given uh, the gift of wisdom from God. You can bring a case before him, and he's not going to do what benefits him, what lines his pocket. He's going to do what's right and just and good. He's not just in it for himself. He's a good king who does what's good for his people. And, and the people of Israel recognize it and respect him for it and, and are loyal to him because of it. And in, verse, in chapter 4, <clears throat> we start to, chapter 4, the first half of it is just kind of a description of um, Solomon's government that he sets up. So King Solomon was king over all Israel. Then he has a handful of high officials. He has Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. So Zadok was the priest that was initially kind of uh, brought into Solomon's inner circle in chapters 1 and 2. So for some reason, his son Azariah has kind of been uh, made the high priest, the chief priest. Uh, Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was the, in command of the army. Zadok, there's the guy. So, so Zadok, who was the, the, the high priest, now he's a priest. Zadok and Abiathar. Abiathar is the guy who was ousted, kind of expelled and said, you can't be a priest anymore. Apparently now he can be. So Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was the priest and the king's friend, and Ahishar was in charge of the palace. So, so far, so good. We've got a pretty good uh, 
you know, pretty good, good government that's being set up here. And then the second half of verse 6, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Right, so, so again, Solomon is this mixed bag, good and bad, wisdom, but also selfishness and folly that eventually kind of causes his downfall. This word for forced labor is the same word that's used to describe the captivity that the Israelites experienced in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1. And so essentially, what's happened is that Israel has kind of come full circle. They, they started their story in Exodus under the oppressive thumb of Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, I'm worried about these guys. I'm worried that they're going to be a threat to my autonomy, my sovereignty. So I'm going to subjugate them and oppress them and exploit them and enslave them. And they cry out for mercy and God delivers them. God says, right, the slavery that you're experiencing under Pharaoh is not good. I don't like it. And so I'm going to save you from it. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you into your own land. And then I want you there to be different, right? Don't be like all of the other nations. I want you to be different. I want you to use what the, the blessings that I give to you. I want to use it to, to, to bless the world, to make the world a better place. Don't, don't be like the nations and use what I give you to exploit the, 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 the people around you. And now, in just a few short generations, the nation of Israel has kind of gone full circle from being the slaves the enslaved people to being the slave owners and the slave drivers. They're guilty of the same thing that Pharaoh was guilty of in Exodus chapter 1. In fact, uh, Solomon has made an alliance with Pharaoh. So the first thing that we saw in chapter 3 was Solomon makes an alliance with Pharaoh. He marries his daughter. And now in chapter 4, we're seeing that Solomon is starting to take on some of the traits and some of the actions of Pharaoh and kind of employ slavery to kind of you know, build his, build his empire. Verse 7, Solomon had 12 officers over all of Israel who provided food for the king and for his household. Each man had to make provisions for one month in the year. So he divided his kingdom up into 12 regions. Some of them appear to be analogous to the 12 tribes of Israel. But, um, yeah, the nation of Israel has 12 regions. And then there's kind of a royal liaison that kind of goes from the king's kind of royal court to each of these 12 regions, kind of like a tax collector or a, yeah, a, a liaison from the central government. And their job was to make sure that their region paid their fair share and kind of paid for their month out of the, out of the year. So you've got all these names here. You've got Ben-Hur in the country of Ephraim in verse 8. Verse 9, Ben-Decker. Um, verse 10, Ben-Hesed. Verse 11, Ben-Abinadab. Verse 12, you've got Bana, the son of Ahilud. Verse 13, Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead. Verse 14, Ahinadab, the son of Edo. Uh, verse 15, Ahimaz in Naphtali. Verse 16, Bana, the son of Hushai. Verse 17, Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua. Verse 18, Shimei, the son of Elah. Verse 19, Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead. Those are your 12 guys sent from Solomon to each of the 12 regions, and each region is responsible for providing one-twelfth of the royal kind of annual taxation budget. And it says there was one governor who was over the land. That's probably Azariah that we see in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 5. It says that Azariah uh, was, the, was over all of the officers. So 12 officers, one to each region, one guy over them, Azariah, who reports directly to Solomon, the king of 
of everyone. And then in verses 20 through 28, we kind of see a glimpse into the vast wealth of, of King Solomon. Verse 20, it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So, so Judah and Israel, you've got a, t- a huge population, tons of people. One might expect that the more people you have, maybe the more poverty that you have, the more suffering that you, that you have. And he says, not only were there a ton of people, but all of the people had everything that they wanted. They ate and they drank and they were happy together. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and they served Solomon all the days of his life. So that's that they're bringing tribute is that kind of idea of uh, Solomon had expanded his borders. And so all of these other uh, civilizations and nations around him, he had pretty much subjugated them and said, I've dominated you. I have beaten you. And so now you need to pay me uh, tribute. They would bring it to him on huge ships full of gold. We'll see in the next uh, few chapters coming up in the, in the coming weeks. Solomon is the, you know, similar to how we would see other empires and other nations set themselves up. Solomon is the, the head honcho. He's the, the godfather. He's Vito Corleone, right? And he gets a little piece of every single transaction that happens all over the entire nation of Israel, right? So, so, uh, everything that's grown, everything that's consumed, everything that's bought, everything that's sold, a piece of that all comes to Solomon. He gets his. He's got 12 guys that are underneath him. They each kind of get theirs from their respective regions, but Solomon gets his from everywhere. Verse 22, we see the provisions for him in his royal court. The provisions were 30 cores of flour, or yeah, 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So, did a little math this week. That comes out to uh, daily, every single day, the, the, the intake to, to, to kind of feed Solomon, his family, his advisors, the royal court, and the people that were close to him was grain that was in excess of 12 tons. So every single day, 12 tons of grain is brought in and consumed. And every single day, uh, more than 36 tons of meat is brought in and consumed. So, 12 tons of bread, grain, 36 tons of, of meat and protein. This is a rich man with a huge income. He lived a lavish life, and everyone that was remotely in his orbit lived a ridiculously lavish life. Verse 24, for he had, he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsha to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates and he had peace on all sides around him and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon so Solomon's been given wisdom he's used that wisdom to build an economic system where everyone in his nation is thriving everyone has all that they need they've achieved dominance over the surrounding kingdoms no one represents a threat to them they can live and move and thrive as they please total peace total prosperity verse 26 solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen he's got a vast army kind of a a personal bodyguard to kind of you know, whenever he proceeds anywhere, he's got people that come before him and go behind him to protect him. Verse 27, And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to his table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. 
barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each one according to his duty. So it's not just Solomon that gets everything he wants. It's not just all of Solomon's friends and family members and the royal court and his advisors and, and just everyone who's close to him. His animals eat whatever they want. They get whatever they want as, as well. So verses 20 to 28 are Solomon's wealth. Verses 29 to 34 is Solomon's wisdom. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And the breadth of his mind was like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, wiser than Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and and his fame was in, the, was in all the surrounding nations. These are the, the wisest men that are in the world at that time, north, south, east, west, teachers, mentors, shamans, sages. Right? Solomon runs laps around, around all of them. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs in verse 32, several hundred of which we have recorded in the book of Proverbs. And his songs were, one, he wrote 1,005 songs two of which we have recorded in the book of Psalms. Psalm 72 and Psalm 127 uh, are, are recorded as having been written by Solomon. Apparently he wrote over a thousand more beyond those, those two. Verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. So he's, he's the authority on all of these subjects, zoology, right? you know, uh, animals, plants. He's well-read and all these different things. And people from all the nations, verse 34, people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So back in uh, the last verse of chapter 3, it says that all of Israel heard about his judgments and they all stood in awe of him because he was a good and wise and just king. Now at the end of verse 4, it says all the people from all the nations here of the wisdom of Solomon and the, all the kings of the earth, they heard of his wisdom. So he's, he's now transcending. He's famous beyond the borders of Israel. He's famous in all the, the world, recognized as the wisest king, the best king. He rules justly. He rules wisely, right? Heads of state from hundreds and thousands of miles away would travel to see Solomon, meet Solomon, learn from Solomon, observe how he does things, right? How does this guy set up such a successful kingdom, right? How are all of his people provided for so well? How does everyone have more than they need? How has Solomon, I mean, uh, Solomon, uh, if you kind of calculate for uh, inflation and kind of translating it into today's economic standards, scholars think that Solomon's net worth would have been around $2 trillion, so how did Solomon get so rich, so wealthy, have so much, and everyone that's around him has so much? How is he so smart? How does he see and perceive and arrive at the solution that is just and right? It's possible that Solomon was the most famous man on the entire planet. Everyone knew of him. Everyone wanted to be near him. Everyone wanted to be like him. Everyone wanted to be with him all over the entire world. And so, so 1 Kings 1 through 4 is kind of setting up the foundation of who this man is, who Solomon is. It's the foundation from which the trajectory of his, of his reign and his story and his eventual downfall is going to kind of come, come out of, right? He ascends to the throne. 
we're going to see, we're going to see in, in what we have seen in 1 through 4 is this kind of mixed bag of, of Solomon as a good and great and wise king, but he's also deeply flawed. He has character flaws, he has issues, and he has unrepentant sin in his life and in his heart that eventually derail him entirely. And so, he's chosen by God, beloved son of the Father, good, but then he promptly kills off all of the rival family members and, and you know, political enemies that he has, so that's bad. God offers him anything and he asks for wisdom so that he can rule with justice and righteousness, that's good. But then he promptly marries the daughter of Pharaoh and makes an alliance with Pharaoh and begins acting like Pharaoh, that's bad. Um, right, the, 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 the foundation, like Solomon's life of kind of being good and bad and being a good and wise and godly man who wants to walk like his father David but is constantly pulled away from walking with God like his father David because of the world and the things that the world can offer him. It's kind of meant to be a meant to be a, a cautionary tale for us, a warning for us, a warning that if you're constantly surrounded by temptations and the things that you are most vulnerable to loving and wanting, so with Solomon it's things like money, sex, power, comfort, security, approval. Those things over time have the tendency to pull our hearts away from God, pull our hearts away from worship. Right? Solomon starts by saying, I want to worship God, but then maybe I'll just worship God at these high places. Right? So, so I'm, still wor- I'm still worshiping God. I'm just worshiping God in a place that he has told me not to, not to right? a place that's associated with idolatry, a place that's associated with adultery. Right? If you take your wife to a date at a strip club, right? Like you, you don't get points for like being faithful to your wife. That's at at worst it's infidelity. At best it's stupidity, right? And so Solomon, if Solomon worships God at these high places that are associated with adultery and idolatry, that's kind of how he started. So you can see his his heart constantly being pulled little by little with the, the, the world and with the things that he, that he loves over time. And then eventually in chapter 11, the bad overtakes the good and he turns completely away from the Lord. He worships other gods instead of God and God punishes him for it. God raises up adversaries to, to take him down and take him out. After Solomon's kingdom, after Solomon's reign comes to an end, the kingdom is split in two, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, it falls into to disrepair all because of Solomon's sin and his kind of obsession with and being allured by money and power. And so in that way, he kind of serves as a cautionary tale for us. He serves as a, as a warning for us as the people of God. 1 Corinthians 10 says, The things that happened in the Old Testament to Solomon and others, the things that happened to them happened as an example to us. They are written down for our instruction. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. First Timothy 4. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. So when we, when we look at the story of Solomon, we look at his, you know, the, 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 the grand beginnings of, of wisdom and wealth and blessing from God, but we kind of look at where it ends up falling away from God, turning away from God and experiencing the judgment of God. 
It's meant to kind of make us stop and pause and think. No matter who, no matter who you are, no matter who you come, no matter where you come from, no matter what your pedigree is, no matter what your competencies are, no matter how proficient you are, how smart you are, how wise you are, watch out, be careful, watch your life and your doctrine closely, and if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The story of Solomon is meant to make us stop, take stock, and think, man, I could... I could end up like that. I need to be careful lest I do end up like that. As, as wise as I may be, as much as I love God, as confident as I am that I'm going to continue to walk with God, that I'm safe and that everything's fine, if I stop actively fighting against sin and temptation, if I give in even through a series of small compromises, if I give in to the love of money or to the lust for power, if I give in to worldly, sinful impulses that may be lurking beneath the surface in my heart, if I give in to those things, then I can and will end up just like Solomon did. Starting out wise, starting out righteous, starting out godly, starting out faithful, but slowly being pulled away through a series of small compromises. Slowly being pulled away from worshiping the one true God and worshiping false gods instead. That's the story of Solomon. He was wealthy, he was wise, but in the end he turned away from the Lord. And the same thing can happen to us. The same thing can happen to us unless we are continually, perpetually, persistently, actively, moment by moment, day by day, looking to Christ, walking with Christ, turning from sin, trusting in Christ. You never arrive at a place spiritually in this life where you don't need to keep on fighting, where you can stop pedaling and start coasting. You never arrive at a place where you can stop actively fighting to repent of sin and actively fighting to trust in Jesus. You never arrive at a place where you can stop dying to yourself. Those are things that we have to do as believers, and those are things that we have to keep on doing as believers all of our lives. Jesus died on the cross for you, for your sin, to satisfy the wrath of God so that you can enjoy his grace, receive his salvation, be reconciled to God. Jesus got up out of the grave in victory over Satan and sin and death so that you could also walk in newness of life with him, turning from sin, trusting in him, persevering in the faith. Friends, the the story of Solomon is here for our instruction. It's here to serve as a warning. And that warning is, no matter who you are, no matter how wise you are, you need Jesus to save you. And no matter who you are, and no matter how wise you are, if you want Jesus to save you, you need to turn from your sin and trust in him, and you need to keep turning from your sin and keep trusting in him. So what God has called us to do that's what we have committed to do together as a, as a church family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
we read this story, and in many ways, it's deeply encouraging, right? That you are a, a God who is faithful, that you made promises to, to Abraham, and you made promises to David, and you keep those promises even in the midst of sin and rebellion and folly of your people. So we're encouraged by the faithfulness of God that's on display in this story. And yet, in other ways, the story is disturbing. Because while we see the faithfulness of God, we also see the the faithlessness of humanity, and we see our own capacity for faithlessness. We see someone who starts out good, but is pulled away through compromises. So Lord, we pray that you would protect us from this. We pray that you would help us to persevere in the faith. We pray that you would help us to, to hate our sin and to, to make war on it. Even sin that feels small and insignificant, we pray that you would help us to take it seriously. We pray that you would help us to trust in Christ and to hold fast to him, not just for a moment, but for, for all of our entire lives. Lord, we pray that you would give us the gift of perseverance in repentance and faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.